What manner of love, that's going to be our topic tonight. I'd like you to meet me in 1 John chapter 3. You know, what we talked about this morning is, is uh, you know, it's pretty routine for many believers. You and I understand these principles, but I, I really want to stress the importance of practice. Uh, practice, you've heard it before, practice makes perfect, and you know, there's, of course, that's true. You get something down to a routine, you're going to start making a channel in your brain, and that motion's going to get better and better. You know, there's a bunch of sports that were played today with people that have practiced so much at their moves, they're professionals at it, making a living at it. But, you know, for the Christian, it's not, praf- it, it's not practice to become perfect, it's practice because we will be. It's a guarantee. And we get a chance to experience what our life will be like now. I think we rob ourselves a lot of times if we're not focusing on that. You know, I see it, especially as we have all these things going on around the world, I see, you know, just once again, the, the immature side of Christianity rearing its head and causing division and causing separation and not really cutting to the heart of the matter, is, which is that Jesus died on the cross for sins, and I know it's, it's so tempting to focus on the political aspect of things because there is a lot of craziness going on in the world. And that's, I'm not standing up here denying that or saying that we shouldn't pay attention to that. We should. But, you know, we can do something about that. We, we should not expect to change the world, but we certainly can bring people to the knowledge of something that can change their life. And that's the gospel message. Yesterday we had a reunion in the back and it was for all of the Christian youth ranches uh, from years ago and Tampa Bay Bible College and Florida Bible College. And you know, some of these people, I have, I've heard their names for a long time, but I've never really seen them before. So there were about 25 or 30 people there. And it started at 10 o'clock, and it went all the way until 3 o'clock. We had a little break there, an hour break for lunch. But there would be somebody who would you know, raise their hand and say they'd like to share their testimony. And you find out how people, one way or another, whether they work on McDill or they're working in a convenience store or they went to school with somebody who went to Tampa Youth Ranch and they all found their way to Tampa Youth Ranch and they all sat on a rug square, maybe in somebody's house or in a rented out furniture place, whatever it was, and they all heard the gospel from Dr. Hank Lindstrom and they trusted Christ as their Savior. Many of them went on into Christian service. I was given a book by one gentleman who trusted Christ as a Savior at a ranch message, and he wrote an apologetics book, which is, you know, a defense of doctrines. And I was reading through it last night, and he had a section, you know, it said, easy believism, question mark, or um, once saved, always saved, question mark. And you know, I got to go to those and see. Got to make sure that, you know, we're, we're holding on to biblical truth here. And to see somebody I've never met, but I know what he believes because he sticks with the gospel. That's encouraging. And it's so rare. I don't know how many of you have seen botched testimonies where several things happen. One of them is the person's just not prepared. They don't know what they want to say. They know what they feel, but they they don't really know how to communicate it. Or the one that I think is worse than that is when people uh, communicate a message that's a false message. They say, I did this or I did that, and because of this, I know that I'm saved and there's actions that they've done. That didn't happen once yesterday, and it was so encouraging. I want to share one with you before we get further into my study. There was one where it was uh, Dory Greason was a student in high school, and she had led, I believe, a friend to Christ named Terry, and, well, she had shared the gospel with Terry, and, and, and Terry, her, she, in her testimony, she said 20 seconds before New Year's Eve, she was, she was very sick. She had some sort of sickness that lasted for like three months, and she, she came from Church of Christ. And she said on that New Year's Eve, she was looking at things together, and she was like, I heard all the things that Dr. Lindstrom said, and I compared them with all the things that the Church of Christ said about the same verses. Because her mother had said, don't go to that man. That man's going to pull everything out of context, speaking of Dr. Lindstrom. Well, let me tell you, folks, although that's crude, we shouldn't be looking for pulling things out of context because that is, that is definitely happening. And you know what? Terry found the Church of Christ, 
every time pulled something out of context. And what Dr. Lindstrom was showing was right in line with context. And that was happening over and over and over again. And she was starting to come to the truth that the way that I thought I had to be to get to heaven is not ever going to be good enough. I need to put my trust in Jesus. So she got saved. Well, she went back to school that January and she saw Dory and she was like, I'm I'm so excited. I understand. I know these things. And then she started working on her family. She started working on her mother. She started working on her um, brothers and sisters. And they all came to Christ until very last, I believe it was her mother, was the very last person who put her trust in Jesus Christ as her Savior. And then to see yesterday, you know, they're, they're in their 60s now. But they saw each other for the first time in a long time and immediately had common ground. Immediately could go, you remember when you told me about the gospel and then I searched it out for myself? And it was story like that, story after story after story. One gentleman was walking down a stairwell at MacDill Air Force Base getting ready to go to a party where he would spend most of his Friday night and, Sunday and Saturday nights drinking. And as a result of this, he, was in, he, he came across this young girl who was just standing at the end of the stairwell and asked him a question. Do you want to know the question that she asked him? If you were to die today, do you know you're going to heaven? And through that, he ended up in a ranch meeting and trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And you go, man, people are still... I train people in, in Bible college and encourage people, ask people that question because so many people will be shocked that somebody has asked them, and it will make them think, do I know that I'm going to heaven if I were to die today? And you can then give them the good news. But to see that from, you know, 40-something years ago, 50-something years ago, still bring about fruit. And these people that I've, I've never seen, but they're still serving the Lord. I, I spoke with a pastor yesterday during lunch who he knows he's, he's getting to the point in his life where there's less of his life left than what has been lived but he's looking for a replacement. He says, I don't have any problem training people, but the people I've trained, they're all working in ministry somewhere else and they don't want to come back, which is a good problem to have. But he sat next to me and he said, you know, I'm looking for somebody. Can you think of anybody? And I have people in mind, you know, that I've, I've, I have students that I'm thinking of. I have people that are in different ministries, but it's great to know the first thing he told me was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit, sit with them. They're going to sit under my teaching, but the gospel's clear at my church. And that was Danny Coggins. It was so interesting to see all these different things. And you, you sit there and you realize, you know, we're only getting older and people need to be ready to take over. But when we're not ready, when we're just kind of enjoying the freedom that we have without working to bring up the next generation, it'll be gone for that generation. It, it won't be there. And the gospel is certainly something that's come under attack over and over again. I was just talking to Janice before we started the service. She says, I love the reminders to keep the gospel the main focus. It needs to be the main focus. It's not because we don't know the deeper things of God. That is the deep thing of God. We, with, without the gospel, we don't have anything. And it's why I want to speak on this, this phrase that we see in 1 John chapter 3, what manner of love. There's three things that we see in these three verses that are very important. Two of them are positives. One of them is a perceived negative, but with a positive outcome. And we'll talk about that now. So look in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is page 1323. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Why don't you go back to verse 1 and see a couple of things here. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed. This is something that has been given. This is something that has been placed. And what has been placed is the Father's love upon, as it says right there, and this is important to focus on, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. We're right in the middle of a letter here. So this is kind of like butting into a conversation where we're just getting the middle of it. 
Who is the us that John refers to here? Well, it's really only in two categories. It could be those who are in Christ or those who are without Christ. Or you can make a third category. It's everybody. But we know from the context here, back in chapter 2, would you look there for a moment? It's just across the page. Chapter 2 and verse 1, John uses a description for these children of God. He says, my little children, these things write I unto you. And we stop there because, you know, there's lots of things that he says as he goes through this, but his address is to little children. He's talking to children of God. He's talking to those who are born again. So when he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, what manner of love the Father hath given or laid upon us, he's talking about this is the kind, this is the description of love that God has given to those who have believed. And what is that? Look what it says. That we should be called the sons of God. We talked about this earlier this morning. This idea and spiritual doctrine of adoption. That now God has moved from just being our judge or our creator to now he is our father. And as a result of that, we are his children. And I purposefully in the message this morning did not focus on verses in the Bible that said sons of God because I wanted to address that tonight. The designation that we have of God as our father now also makes us his children. So it's, it's, this is a, this is, we know in the world today, nothing can change that. You will always be born into your family. Now there's emancipation that can happen where you can go into the courts and the court can legally say that you're, you know, no longer a part of that family. You can separate yourself from your family lineage. But you're always going to be of the flesh and blood of your parents. No law can really change that. And it's important to note here that the description that is given about this designation as a son is out of the manner of love. This is important to understand because it's not just God is doing this you know, judicially. This is sparking from his love for us. I want you to hold your spot here in 1 John 3 and go to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. Galatians is a highly uh, doctrinal book teaches a lot about uh, error and the error that was persisting in the churches in the region of Galatia. But Paul, in in his discussion here, he's going to make some statements. He already has. He's he's about to discuss the dichotomy between the birth in Abraham and the birth in the Spirit. But he says here in verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3, page 1245, he says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And we know from Romans 6 that we're buried in the likeness of his death. We're also raised to walk again in newness of life. Therefore, as it says in 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is the focus I want you to see here. And if ye be in Christ, and that doesn't mean if as if like it's a conditional thing. He's arguing from what has already been said to be true. If ye be in Christ, which you are, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We, did, we talked about this on Wednesday night, which I, I do want to encourage you, if you have not had a chance to listen to the Wednesday night message, I would, I would encourage you to do so. We're talking about Israel's right to the promised land and how it's not a political thing. It's not, even the, it's not even Israel's choice. God has made it that way. And it's important to recognize here that the promise that was given back in Genesis chapter 12 to the children of Israel, we are now grafted in as a part of that. Look at what this says. And if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Just as a note here, In Genesis chapter 12, you'll see the promises to and thy seed and thy seed and thy seed. And later in the book of Galatians, Paul makes a mention of that. He doesn't say to seeds as many, but he says to seed as one, and that seed is who? Christ. So Christ is the one who inherits, and all of those who are found in him are now also going to inherit. And that's what's discussed in Romans chapter 8 
about being an heir, not just a child, but now being an heir. And we looked at that this morning. But jump into chapter 4 of Galatians and look in verse 5. Oh, we'll start in verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law. That's you and me. That's the whole world. That we might receive the adoption of sons. So not only here are we redeemed, but we're also adopted in and given the title as a son. And when we saw in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 this morning, we saw that we also become heirs. Look in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7. You can let Galatians go. Revelation 21, verse 7. This is page 1351. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So this is important to understand, this placing into the body of Christ. We're also called heirs. We will also inherit all things, and we'll be with him at the end of it all. This is the manner of love that God has demonstrated to us who have believed. Go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. We've already defined us as those who believe that we should be called the sons of God. And this is the negative, the perceived negative point that we're going to discuss that is actually a positive. But it says here, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. I don't know if you guys remember this. I only remember it because it was something that was, you know, uh, a trendy buzzword type thing that was happening. But there's a very famous Hollywood actor. His name is Chris Pratt. And he's in a lot of these action films and stuff. And he's just kind of everywhere. He was getting all the roles. He's getting a lot of screen time. And come to find out, you know, he's pressed about, you know, what Hollywood does, trying to weed people out, trying to expose people and, and, and see where people really are. And he said some things about Jesus, and he actually used his name, and, and there are some things that came out to be very positive. But you come to find out the places where Chris Pratt says you can get spiritual blessing and spiritual teaching are not at all. This same thing happened with the pop singer Justin Bieber, whose pastor was Carl Lentz, who was having many affairs with his wife um, or while he was married. This guy is in the Hillsong Movement Church, and people were looking to him before he fell from his high and lofty spiritual place and saying, you know, this is the idea of Christianity. And why, why is that dangerous? It's dangerous because the more and more we look like the world, the more and more we look like, uh, we look, the more and more, excuse me, the less and less we look like God. We can't, also, we can't have both of these things. We can't live in the world and be of the world and behave like the world and also say we're walking with God. This is something important here that John is writing to, the, to his uh, children, saying the world knoweth you, it doesn't understand you because it's not of God. Look in chapter 2 of 1 John, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 17, the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And we know doing the will of God is to believe on Jesus Christ. But you know he's talking to people that have already believed. And the temptation for them here is to fall into those temptations in verse 16, those three categories in which sin can come into our lives the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which is very clearly said is not of the Father, but is of the world. We're going to suffer persecution, and that's the second point here. So the manner of love that has been bestowed upon us is adoption, but also we will have to suffer persecution. This is not a new topic that is discussed by the Apostle John here. 
Look in John's Gospel, chapter 15. Jesus speaks about it. John chapter 15, going to verse number 18. John chapter 15, starting there in verse 18. This is on page 1137. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love, and I want you to circle this here, his own. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about this, that, um, you know, the, this, this idea that, uh, as John says, no lie is of the truth in 1 John chapter 2. And we talked about how Satan is the father of lies. He doesn't tell half-truths. I mean, they're, they, they're all lies. There is no half-truth, so to speak. You're either telling the whole truth or you're not. And, and this is why it's so important that we can uh, decipher between these two things when you're hearing something, is it true or is it a lie? And what he's saying, what Jesus is saying here is, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. This is talking about, for the believer, it's two things are true here. The believer can be accepted by God and also accepted by the world. And you say, how so? Well, because of the two natures that dwell within us. And we can really waste our lives here by living by that first birth. And if the world, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. This is why you should always be suspicious of the type of Christianity that flourishes in sin. And you see that today. It's on our radio stations. It, it, it flourishes in sin. There's no hard preaching. Now, I know that there's, there's preaching from years and years ago, like with um, Hiles Anderson College and stuff, and some really good messages, and all of that is very good, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I appreciate those men who stood up and addressed the culture because there's not many pastors doing that today. There's this idea of a blind eye that we can just kind of turn away from it and still reach the individual. Jesus said very clearly here, the world's going to love the ones that are of the world. So for the believer, you have this new nature, but then you have this old nature, and the old nature can be loved and, and promoted by the world, and you can choose to live in that. And that's what Romans 6 is saying. Why would we want to live in this, which is, this, this is going to be dead and gone. We have the new nature now. Well, because temptation is strong. The spirit is willing, yes, but the flesh is very weak. And people are... I hear a lot of people say, well, I really I can't help it. It's not something that I can help. And if I can just speak transparently there, that's, that tells me that you, you have spiritual weakness. You, may, you very well may not be able to walk in the spirit well. It's because you haven't done it. You're not... And I don't want to say you're not trying, because I think people are trying, but they're, they're trying to walk in their spirit while walking in their flesh. Do you understand that? You really have to let go. And that doesn't mean you become inactive. It's not this idea of like clearing your mind and stuff, but it's letting go of trying to make the results happen and trusting God to bring about the fruit he said he would bring. And that is hard for people to understand. Because people, you know... Okay, today's Sunday, right? A lot of people are going to bed tonight saying, I'm going to start Monday. Whatever they're going to start. I'm going to start saving money. We're going to start paying off debt. I'm going to start going to the gym and working out. Whatever it is, they say, I'm going to start. And then they start Monday, and they hit it, and they hit it hard. And it's a good day. And Tuesday comes, and they hit it, and they hit it hard. Wednesday comes, it's good. By Thursday and Friday... This idea of you've done so well, you can take time off. Or something comes up and you go, oh, I know I've made these commitments, but this is important. Let me get this first and then I'll go back to these habits, which are not habits yet. You've just had three successful days in a row. And then Thursday comes and they take the day off. And then Friday you're like, oh, the weekend or someone's birthday party that you forgot about. And then the next thing you know, you're going to bed Sunday night going, I'm going to start full steam on Monday. That is not the Christian life. You do not produce the fruit in the Christian life. The new nature produces the fruit. Christ is the one that brings those things forward. We have to serve him, and he will bring those things to come to pass. When we try to get in the driver's seat, and we don't let Jesus lead, that's gonna, there's going to be problems there. 
Because you're going to start really good on Monday, really good on Tuesday, really good on Wednesday, and then the devil comes in on Thursday and blows the whole thing up. And he doesn't even have to really come in. Your, new, your old nature comes in and messes it up. And then people, they, they just bind themselves, and it becomes this never-ending problem. People will ask me all the time, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? What does it mean? You produce the fruit of the Spirit. Go look at that list in Galatians chapter 5 and do those things. You're going to find out there's a lot of things that you should do that you're not doing. I think one of the, one of the things that we could do that would be walking in the Spirit tonight is if we were to just go to our homes, pray for our neighbors, and the very next day knock on their door. And I'm not saying we shove the gospel down their throat. Invite them to a meal. Find ways to enter a discussion with them where you can talk about the gospel. I've seen people do this too. They're like, okay, I'm supposed to soul win. So then they just go and they, they do a horrible job at it. It's almost like they're, they're twisting somebody's arm to trust Christ. That's, that's one way to give the gospel out. Okay? But you, you can do better. I'll give you an example. We had a neighbor that moved in. And at the time, he was looking to go into the police force. He was very passionate about it, very excited about it. And one Sunday, you know, I'm getting out of my truck and I'm walking up and he's walking right next to me and we stop right by the gate at my house and we're talking. And he saw that I was dressed for him, which is way overdressed for a Sunday, you know. I don't even think it clicked to him that I was going to church. But he said, oh, where, where are you coming from? I said, well, I pastor a church by the airport. And so I had, my tra- I had a track on me and I gave him a track and we started talking. Well, the next thing we know, we walked to his house and sat in on his porch and at that time, it was about three months since someone had come into our lives and given us a scholarship for adoption. So that was fresh on my mind. And we were talking, and he started getting emotional because he wants children, but he and his wife are not ready. And he says, I just don't know if I can be a good dad. I didn't have a role model for, uh, for a father when I grew up. I just don't know if I can love in that way. There's the door. And you hit the door. What was the door in that illustration? He mentioned love. And I get to look at him and go, I'm a pastor. I know how to do it. No, not at all. That is not what I said. I got to look at him square in his eyes and tell him, I don't understand that love either, but I know how I can understand it. I know what it's like to not, to to feel like you're not enough, but I know somebody who loves me in the way that I can love others. And I gave him the gospel, shared with him how he can understand he has eternal life. He pondered on it. Didn't trust Christ right there, but now every time that I see him, we have a foundation that's been laid. Folks, I think that's walking in the Spirit. I think those are things that bring about fruit. But if I'm trying to do everything of my own accord, it's not going to happen. Look at the middle of verse 19. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now he's speaking here about their disciple their designation as a disciple. They've been chosen out of the world, so the world is going to hate them. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. That's an encouragement at the end because the apostles are going to go and lay the foundation for the teachings in the church. And you know what's really sad is just about one generation after the apostles, you know, the very next um, disciples of those apostles, the gospel started getting messed up. And that's why John had to write what he wrote. I think John wrote in A.D. after the destruction of Jerusalem, before what happened in uh, his, the visions that he had for Revelation. So probably around A.D. 90 or, or uh, A.D. 80 or A.D. 90, around that time. And he's still he's addressing things in the church that were coming up that Jesus didn't have a real body, that he's not really the Christ, all these different things were coming up. How could that happen when it was just, you know, 30 something years removed from Jesus? Because the devil doesn't want this message getting out. And it's it's encouraging to see here that if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But the first part is what I want to focus on. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Here's the disciples. They're about, Jesus, he already said in chapter 13, I'm going away. I'm not going to be here anymore. You know how much that broke their hearts? They loved this man. They believed that he was going to come and liberate Israel from the tyranny that they were under. And they hear now he's going, he's going to leave. He did something amazing in John chapter 13 that was very socially unacceptable, but he washed the feet of his disciples. 
All the disciples, they kept silent as Jesus did it, except for Peter. Peter said, no, no, I'm not going to let that happen. Jesus says, you'll, you'll understand. Just wait a few verses. I mean, he didn't say wait a few verses, but he explained it in a few verses. And Peter said, no, I will not let it. Jesus says, if you don't let me do this, you have no part of me. And you see the heart of Peter. He said, not just my feet, but my body also. He so desperately wanted fellowship with the Lord. He so desperately wanted to be what he ended up being, which was somebody that was beloved by the Lord. But look at all the things that he went through. Peter succumbed to the world. He allowed the world to influence him, but he was not given up on. I think that's one of the most beautiful illustrations of forgiveness outside of the cross is the three times that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? It was the same amount of times that Peter denied him. And I think if it would have needed a fourth, Jesus would have done a fourth, amen? You see these beautiful illustrations in Scripture of how we're supposed to suffer through the difficulties in this life. Knowing that there's a, there's a likelihood that we will fail, but that failing is not because God failed us, it's because we stopped believing that God was able to do what he said he would do. Look in chapter 16, verses 32 through 33. The disciples are saying, <laughs> we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus says, oh, you, do, you, do you now believe? And then he says in 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. We could spend an entire sermon unpacking that, but I want you to draw your focus on the 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me, in me, I want you to focus on that, in me, not in yourself, not in your ability, not in your talents, not in your naturally born gifts. In Christ, ye, um, ye might have what? Peace. That's where everything slows down, folks. And I can't, I have done this through counseling with people that have gone through very traumatic experiences. They understand what it is to find peace in the midst of the storm. And I, I, you know, that description is so overused in our Christian music today. But we see the truth of it here. Where is that peace? You shouldn't like run to Calvary Community Church to try and find peace. You don't have to move your feet anywhere. He's with you. Look what it says at the end of this verse. In the world, now look at the, look at the difference. In me, Jesus, peace. In the world, you shall have tribulation, difficulties, but be of good cheer. How? How can I be of good cheer when you've just told me I'm going to have tribulation? He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why does he say that he has overcome the world? He's reminding them, in me you've got peace because I've overcome the world. He's the one that's done it. I didn't raise again from the dead by my own power. Jesus did. I could never pay for my own sin. Jesus paid for my sin. And now, because of that, I walk forward through the tribulation. I look at the persecution and say, I can have a better understanding of what my Savior experienced. And the world will look at you and say, you madman, you crazy person. And the, who would want to go through sufferings? Who would want to go through persecution? Although the outside circumstances look as such, the inward circumstances reveal we have peace. He's overcome the world. We believe on him. We've also been called overcomers. Go, go back to 1 John 3. 1 John 3, and look in verse uh, 13, because you know John, he, he later, in the same chapter, writes on this a little bit more. 1 John 3, 13, he says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. And certainly, the world does despise Christianity. And then the final point here is glorification. This is the manner of love that has been bestowed upon us. Look in verse 2. 1 John 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. There's that designation of adoption. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. 
You know, we've talked about this a couple of times in the last few sermons, but this is talking about we don't yet see what is a guarantee to come. When I see you come to church tonight, I don't see your glorified body, nor you see mine. I don't even know what those bodies are going to look like, but I know they're going to be significantly better. They're not even worthy to be compared to what we have here. But I'm not looking at you and saying, I hope they will be glorified. Do you understand the difference there? I don't pray that you may be glorified as if it's something I don't know. If you tell me what you believe has paid for your sins and that answer lines up with the Bible, I can look at you and know, because of God's word right here, that you will be glorified. Puts everything into perspective. But we know that when he shall appear, so this is also an indicator as to when this glorification happens, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is the glorification that will happen for those who are dead in Christ. They will rise first at the rapture. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, will be transformed into this new body. Look in Colossians chapter 3. You know, glorification is very, very important. Um, I think in Philippians, which we're going to, we'll end in Philippians tonight. Um, but I, I think that it's one of, the, one of the things that Paul looks forward to the most is that he knows what, how things are going to end. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 say this, If ye then be risen with Christ, which we know that we are, seek those things which are above in, in the heavens, in the eternal future, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, your desire, your ambition on things above, the eternal future, not on things on the earth, the, the, the present temporal things. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. This is an important function here I want you to see. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, the rapture, then shall ye also appear, number one, with him, number two, in glory. So we're not going to get to heaven to see if we were good enough. We're going to get to heaven because we've believed on Jesus Christ. The glorification will happen. Look in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 through 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ once offered to bear the sins of many, has he already offered himself to bear the sins of many? Yes, he has. That's already been done. He's also risen from the dead. He's also ascended. We see that in Acts chapter 1. And unto them that look for him, I believe this is a reference to those who are believers. They're looking for, looking for that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 13. And unto them that look for him, Shall he appear the second time, I think this is again speaking of the rapture here, without sin unto salvation. What does it mean unto salvation? Some people would look at this and say, this is the test that they were really saved. They're looking for him and, and, and therefore when they're found, they won't be in sin at that time. That's really deceptive. What does this mean? This is the culmination of our salvation. We already have the guarantee that we're going to be glorified, but we're not yet glorified, but we know that we will be. Because why? Jesus said those that believe will receive everlasting life. So when we appear with the Lord, guess what? We will appear without sin unto the completion of our salvation. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, I want you to take a look at that. Philippians is one of those tear-stained pages, man. It's just, as a pastor, you see, you see Paul's heart. You see how he saw himself before Christ. Wicked, pumped up with pride, and just 
useless, but now he's in Christ. He's got everything taken care of. And right here in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17, we have some great things. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. So He doesn't have joy in saying this, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Now many people want to have a discussion as to, are these people saved or lost? You know, it's, it's difficult to say from the context. I think Paul may be weeping because if they're lost people that are working against the true gospel message, he's weeping at their sure destruction, that they'll be separated from God forever in a lake of fire. But if he's talking about people who were saved, they had put their trust in Jesus Christ, but got caught up in false doctrine, he's weeping because of the what they're going to miss out on in this life. They won't be able to suffer as Christ suffered. They won't be able to stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded. And that's obviously a significant thing. I tend to lean in that direction that these are saved people who have fallen away because of the nature in which Paul is writing here, the appeal to walk in unity. If you have a body that's not jointed properly and it, it can't function, it's, it's a paralyzed body. It doesn't work properly. And I, I'm not sure about that there, but regardless, it's a very serious thing to end up in a disjointed walk, whether you're a lost person or a saved person. But the focus here is on verse 20. For our conversation, our behavior is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior. Remember what Hebrews said? We're looking. Titus 2, looking. Look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body. This is the sin-ridden body. That it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. And this is where I think John gets the thrust of his statement in 1 John 3, 2. We don't see it yet, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like him, we shall see him as he is. We will have that glorified body as Jesus has his glorified body. This is the manner of love that's been bestowed upon us. But I want you to focus on 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, and this is where we'll close. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. And every man that hath this hope, and I think that hope is the hope of eternal life, in him purifieth himself. We should not be living in sin. We should not be playing around with it as if it's something that we have control of. We know our limits. But then it says at the end there, even as he is pure. There's a lot of doctrines out there that don't understand this verse. As a matter of fact, I have looked at several commentaries. There's a website called StudyLight, L-I-G-H-T, StudyLight.org. And it's a really good website. It's culminated a bunch of made, like 26-something commentaries. And I tell you to go there with major warning because a lot of um, writers of commentaries are Calvinist. I'll just tell you right now, that's even the guy that I like the most. I, I really enjoy his commentary. And I only... I only am on one commentary, and I, I hardly even go to it as a source. But even in John 6, there's some things where I'm just like, why did you say that? Why did you make it seem like something that the Scripture does not say? Regardless, people look at this verse, and they, they, it's one of the most confusing verses in the Bible for them. Why? Because, well, they don't believe in the two natures. They think it's one nature. Why would the nature who is already pure need to purify itself? What is John talking about here? Every man that hath this hope in him, they're born again, purifieth himself. He abstains from the sinful nature, walks in the new nature, even as he is pure. He's already pure in that new nature. But this old nature is present, and it is contrary to that growth. That's why you can see what verse 9 says. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit one single act 
does not commit one single act of sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That's speaking of the new nature. And in 1 John 3, 3, you have verses 1 and 2 before that say, because of the adoption, the placing of a son, because of the persecution, and because of the coming glorification, all these things keep yourself pure. Don't act like the nature that will not be here anymore. Live in the new nature. Easy preaching, very hard living. And it it becomes easier through routine. And and that's why I love this church. And I'll I'll be honest with you. You have Reunion Sunday, and that's a great thing. But you know what? I wish that was every Sunday. I really do. I wish it was every Sunday. I wish we could see the urgency to reach people. This is not common. This will not be around forever. My heart breaks when people email me and say, I can't find anything. My wife wants to go to church. We want to have a place for for our kids to grow and have Christian fellowship, but we can't risk being under false doctrine. And I I wish I could duplicate myself and say, here, have this, and, and let this go start a church. But I realize the best thing I can do is give that person what they need, and they go plant that church. I've said this more and more as time has gone on. When, when guys call me and they say, I'm looking for a church, I just talked to a guy in California about this. He's not near the church that, I'm, that, I, that I know about and have sent people to. But he says, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, just, I'm so distraught, but I'm not, he's got four kids. I'm not going to bring my kids into this teaching. I'm not going to do it. I said, it's good. You shouldn't do that. Because you never know what your kids hear for months until they finally say something to you. And now, that could be a mess. But I prayed about it, and I sought counsel with Pastor Kakuza about this. This was a while ago. And I said to him, have you thought about maybe the possibility that this is God putting the burden on you to go start that clear church? And for this guy, it was like, man, I never thought of that before. But it gave him something to look forward to. He's like, I could do that. And I told him, it's like, great, you don't have to buy a building either. Do you have a home? Open it up to people. (laughs) You can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. I can't start a church because I don't have enough money to rent out a facility. You're paying a mortgage on one. Open up your home. Bring people in. I know there's ministries that would find Bibles and find hymnals and all of that to bring people in. Then you can see the results of that. Years later, when you have a ministry that's able to function and reach people at a very large Uh, radius but we shouldn't take this for granted and that that's just me bearing my heart i i know how easy it is to just turn things on and turn things off i get that but it shouldn't be that way with our christian walk it should be on all the time and that takes habit that takes practice but the encouragement here i think is in first john 3 1 through 3 they're they're really some of my favorite verses in the bible you can go ahead and close your Bibles as we're, we're wrapping up for tonight. I want to say, too, um, Gil, you know, he made these little blocks here. Um, he made smaller versions that can fit in your pocket and stuff. And I would, he made them for the youth, but we've had a discussion about, you know, getting these, you know, print, uh, getting even more of these made. And wouldn't it be great if we could just carry around a little illustration like this? I think it'd be very helpful. I think it would also be, a great way to capture people's attention, you just pull something out of your pocket and you go, boom, sin. Like, I did not expect you to bring that out. You can really, you know, like, how offensive. <laughs> but uh, Mr. Hernandez, a couple of weeks ago, he had the smaller version, and he said, my pastor's sin is bigger than my sin. And I was like, whoa, all right. All right, Louis. <laughs> I do want to share with you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die. If this hand represents you and me, I'll let this block of sin represent what it is, sin. Put this on top of my hand because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. God loves us very much, but our sin separates us from Him. And in order to be in heaven with Him forever, we have to be sinless without any sin. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever, and a literal fire-burning hell. There is no amount of good works that could ever save you. Many churches today are teaching that. You can turn from your sin. You can give your life to God. You can promise to do better. You can give money. You can live a good life by man's standards. But none of those things will pay for your sin. 
We're not saved by good works. Somebody has to die for this. And God loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place and pay for our sins. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The moment that you, as a sinner, put your trust, you believe on Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh and who has no sin, that payment that He made, which has already been made, is now applied to you. And so when God looks at you, He sees you justified, you're set apart, and your glorification is a guarantee. We live in this life now, even though we're sinless in our new nature, we're born again, we're a child of God, but we can let this get in the way of our fellowship with God. This becomes a hindrance to our spiritual growth. This becomes a hindrance to our sanctification here. It's encouraging to know that all of our sin is paid, but it's also the only way that we can properly serve the Lord. But if you're here tonight and you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, all you have is this. You have a payment for sin ready to be applied. You just need to believe on Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're watching online tonight and that made sense to you and you say, Pastor, before I was watching this live stream, I thought I could work my way to heaven, but now I recognize that Jesus paid for all my sins. I could never be good enough, so I put my trust in Him. I'd love to pray for you. Would you send us an email if you're on Facebook or YouTube? You can leave a comment with your email, and we'd like to reach out to you with um, some literature that we believe would be encouraging. If you're on Sermon Audio or on the website, you can click the button that says, Yes, I will trust Christ alone as my Savior. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed in the room. You know, we're getting close to the end of the year, and there's just a lot of things that we're thinking about, things that we could have done, things that we want to do. I just want you to quiet all that noise for a moment and be reminded of that sacrifice that Jesus made. Be reminded of the present reality that you are a child of God. There's nothing that could ever be done to change that. Be reminded that God is not just some taskmaster of do's and don'ts. He's your heavenly Father who loves you with a kind of love that we cannot comprehend here in the world. Quiet all that noise and be thankful. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.